Hi, this is Jeff Hogan from Moving to Value Alliance here with Drs. Stephen Schutzer, John Rodas, and Lisa Trumbull. Today, we're joined by Vice President of Strategy at Capital Rx, Josh Golden. This is a really important week for us at the Moving to Value Alliance with news of what is likely the first of many CAA breach of fiduciary duty lawsuits against employers in Ann Lewandowski versus Johnson & Johnson. So we've been talking about CAA for more than two years now. We're really focused on its opportunity to advance value-based healthcare and to create alignment between supply and demand. So we're really excited to have you here today, Josh. I'm thrilled to be here, Jeff, and thanks very much for including me in the discussion. Josh, quick, could you introduce yourself to the group? Yeah, sure. Josh Golden. I'm the Senior Vice President of Strategy with Capital RX. I've been with the organization about four years. And prior to that, spent about 20 years as a consultant in the benefits industry, largely focusing narrow and deep on the area of pharmacy benefits. Uh, as a consultant early on in my career, I um, realized very quickly that good consultants go where the problems are. They run towards problems. And uh, pharmacy, frankly, was a, a problem that was hitting every one of my clients, you know, in the early 2000s and and uh, through the, the really the, the entire first two decades of the century. So uh, I, you know, during that time became a pretty outspoken critic of the traditional PBM business model. And the more I learned about how PBMs derived their profit and how they structured drug pricing and and worked within the supply chain, frankly, became more and more frustrated. Spent a lot of my time banging my head against the wall and soapboxing publicly and, and trying to get plan sponsors to make better, more intelligent decisions around how they procure PBM and how they contract with PBMs. And ultimately found my home here at Capital Rx, you know, mission-driven PBM that's looking to fundamentally change and address those issues from the inside. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start us off with a question, Josh. You you have really extensive experience in pharmacy benefits, working with Fortune 500 companies, unions, government entities. Pharmacy is a key focus of this lawsuit, including issues around price gouging, lack of appropriate PBM procurement, and biased procurement vendor steerage that really financially benefited the group's consultants on the case. So for most employers, pharmacy has been really the ultimate black box and a real problem for employers trying to understand their costs and efficacy. More important, it's generally the biggest trend factor category for most employers and now represents an even greater financial threat to the plan because of the number and extents of high cost claims. So why is this case so important and potentially a landmark? Yeah, well, so th the case to me is the culmination of what I see as a perfect legal and regulatory storm that has been forming quite literally for decades. It's become, you know, a lot more powerful, a lot more noticeable in the last five years or so as the media, as legislators and other government officials, folks at the FTC have taken sharp notice of the traditional PBM business model and its potential contributory effect 
towards drug pricing and drug trend. And so, you know, we have more lights being shown on this dark segment of the of the healthcare supply chain. And so, you know, obviously there's that effect that I think drove this. But if you think about some of the other powerful wind forces that are at play here, you've got the Consolidated Appropriations Act, right? Which, you know, over the last year or two has expanded fiduciary responsibilities for employers uh, and also included elements that focused people's attention in on PBM finance as an area of potential concern with new reporting requirements, new disclosure requirements around PBM. And to your point, Jeff, you've got uh, an ERISA-regulated area of benefits that has experienced um, really unchecked growth now for over a decade, decade and a half, trend rates that exceed, you know, in stamp, you know, typical inflation rates that exceed even the trend rates that these plans are experiencing on the medical plan side, right? And within their other benefit uh, areas. And simultaneous to that, you have, uh, perhaps not uncoincidentally, you have a pretty remarkable profit and uh, corporate performance within the, the vertically integrated carriers and a revelation, I would say, more recently that much of that profit growth has been fueled by the pharmacy segments of those organizations, right? The pharmacy services segments of those organizations, frankly, the PBMs that most of those carriers over the last five or 10 years have gobbled up. So these are the, the wins that are at play within the, what I call sort of the perfect storm uh, for an event like this to take shape. And it was in some senses, almost inevitable. It was really only a matter of time before something like this was going to happen. And in fact, we we kind of have a blueprint for it historically with a wave of, frankly, similar lawsuits, similar class action lawsuits that occurred in the early 2000s under another ERISA area regulated benefits, retirement benefits, right? With pension and 401k plans that at the time were experiencing some of the same economic um, uh, issues and conflicts that exist right now within the drug supply chain, within pharmacy. And we can get into some of that historical context and how it might be relevant here. But to me, this was only a matter of time. Yeah, Josh, I, I couldn't agree more. Being on the, the provider side, we're actively practicing value-based care and at risk in numerous agreements. We can't help but notice that our pharmacy trend is escalating at an insane rate. And as you stated, more so than hospital trend or any other trend in our medical budget. Um, and we all have family members that experience uh, insane pricing for very basic drugs that they need uh, to treat chronic conditions. When I looked at the lawsuit, I thought the attorneys did a brilliant job of laying out exactly how CAA applies in this scenario and where the drug industry and the employer are at fault in the scenario. And I, I would encourage employers that are listening to, to pick up this lawsuit and read it. The 30 pages that, that matter to you are the first 30 pages, everything else is examples. And if you really want the punchline, just go to the examples in the back of it and look at the 400, 1600% pricing differences between the cost of the drug in what the employer pays and what the patient pays in terms of co-pays and deductibles and, and the like. And I can't help but think that there's gonna be some additional downstream impact, even though 
CAA is more focused on the employer's role and responsibility, there's got to be some downstream impact and liability to PBMs and brokers and everyone else involved in the process. And I'm interested in, in, given your view of the industry, your take on the influence of lawsuits like this on the extended pharmacy management process. Yeah, look, it takes a bit of an earthquake to shake things up. And a lot of times within our world, that comes in the form of something like a class action lawsuit, right? I mean, that this is sort of the, the looming threat that gives anxiety to every planned fiduciary out there. And let's take a moment and acknowledge that when we talk about fiduciaries, we're talking about real human beings that are making decisions that are personally accountable for the prudence of the decisions that they're making, to wit, the lawsuit itself names individual members of the benefits committee that were responsible for decision-making. So to me, that's important to remember because when you get down to the human level here, you have anxiety, you have stress, you have people that are really under pressure. We're not talking about organizations that can hide behind bureaucracy. We're talking about real people making decisions here that feel personally accountable under the rules of ERISA. Um, and I think that that's where there's a tremendous opportunity for this lawsuit and lawsuits like it, which may come soon, to really affect the way business is done here. Now, regardless of the outcome of the lawsuit, let's remember, there's a couple discussions we can have here. One is what's going to happen with this lawsuit, right? And that's a very interesting you know, scenario to what if about. But just in general, the fact that this shot has been fired. And I'm calling it the shot heard around the ERISA world, right? In reference to the first shots uh, at the Battle of Lexington. This is a legal volley that really could propagate and create the path for a whole bunch more to come. And that, I think, is where the anxiety is. It's the potential ripple effect of a lawsuit like this and the precedence that it sets, like it did back for the, the retirement industry in the early 2000s, for you know, additional legal activity to occur. So, so Josh, just to, I want to jump on Lisa's question real quick because it's perfect timing. Having spent the last two and a half years talking to audiences about CAA and getting that glazed over look or the catatonic state look, you know, suddenly everyone and their brother is posting about this, that, and the other thing. Here's a question for you. Think about now, suddenly the CFO of a company becomes the named fiduciary for the health plan. He or she knows nothing about the health plan, nothing, zero. This procurement process has been conveyed in most every employer to an HR person who really don't have any you know, financial or risk background or even procurement background. And they, in turn, have conveyed that responsibility to an employee benefits consultant who goes out to the market and is clearly conflicted. And our new world says, hey, you need unbiased procurement. That CFO may know nothing about knees or hips or babies or shoulders, but they know even less about drugs. So from your perspective, what is the starting point? We've seen all over LinkedIn this week from many different companies. We'll do a free review of your PBM. Nobody trusts anyone in healthcare anymore. Where does a new virgin uh, fiduciary go for direction, especially around drugs? Yeah. To me, you know, in America, 
the great land of capitalism, the dollar prevails. And the, the, that's no different in our world of healthcare, for better or worse. You could argue for worse in many cases. But the dollars are powerful here. And the starting point, really, for understanding potential for conflict within the supply chain, whether you're talking about conflict within the PBM or conflict within the employee benefit consultant, is having full disclosure and true understanding of profit and motive. And that may be one thing that this type of lawsuit can catalyze as a reminder that that's probably your primary responsibility as a fiduciary is to is to be aware of that potential for conflict, if not one of many primary responsibilities. Yeah, I'm at a loss here. You know, who do you trust? And, you know, obviously we just had on December 31st, the requirement that you remove gag clauses. And yeah, that works really well for uh, health services. When it comes to a PBM contract, removing the opacity is much more complex um, than, you know, gag clauses. It's, It's hard to discern. And it's a really complicated question. You know, the consultant isn't really being trusted right now, especially when you're in the middle of a lawsuit. You know, where do you go? It's it's a very difficult question. It is. It is. And, and it, it, I also think it's fascinating to think about the history of the entire consulting industry, which is largely born from an actuarial birth, right? I mean, a lot of these massive consulting firms that control and heavily influence decision-making for 80, 90% of these jumbo employers they're they're born of a world of actuaries. They're they're practically accountants. I mean, they are highly conservative, reluctant to change their models or their methodologies. They are stoic. They are skeptical, highly skeptical of new models. And so, when, for example, a model like uh, Capital RX's or other disruptive PBM models come along, we tend to encounter actually a lot of friction in this world. Um, And despite the fact that some of these newer models might actually present better value props, uh, better transparency, cleaner value, better alignment, I mean, it sort of checks all these boxes, but we continue to encounter a lot of friction within the old world of consulting that seems to be stuck on that, well, let's just keep doing what we've always been doing, because that seems to have worked pretty well for the last couple of decades. Josh, let me... Let me get in the weeds if I can a little bit, or ask you to get in the weeds a little bit on this. For the for the average listener, and, and we're I have to admit we're I don't think we're the average listeners because we've probably collectively listened to 100 hours of lectures on how the hell pharmacy pricing is. And, and honestly, it takes 100 hours to even get an inkling because it's as Jeff alluded to, it's the most opaque thing on the planet. I remember many people have said that there's a handful of drugs uh, from the employer's perspective from there's a handful of drugs in a lot of people's health plans that accounts for a huge percentage of the total spend it could be up to half could be less than you know a dozen sometimes less than 10 drugs especially in the specialty pharmacy space which i think was specifically called out actually in this litigation and you know you look at the prices of of some of the like teraflunamide right as as example i know that you've called out it's tens of thousands of dollars. So how do you really, A, where does an employer even start? And I know, you know, got to start with your data, right? You got to get the freaking data. Where are you spending the money? And how then to the next step are they even supposed to start to make a, a difference in what their employees end up choosing for drugs? And, and I'm going to also say that I served for years on an FDA panel and, and I was struck 
how marginally better some things have to be. Sometimes actually not better at all, but marginally better safety profile or side effect profile to get approved. So, you know, most people think, oh, these drugs are all that better. They're, they're not always that much better. And a lot of people could do fine with the generic, are not going to have the side effects, are going to have good efficacy. So can you unbundle it for our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put some parameters around it. First of all, you reference a small number of drugs, a small number of patients driving a large portion of cost. We always talked about the 80-20 rule in healthcare with 20% of patients driving 80% of cost. You can throw that out the window when it comes to drugs. Specialty drugs are typically utilized by about 1% to 2% of an employee membership population, say an, the, the, the membership that an employer covers on their health plan. And they can represent between 45 and 50% of the total cost. So it's the 80-20 rule on hypersteroids, right? So amplified. And that puts a lot of pressure on employers. Perhaps you could argue an unfair amount of pressure on the employer to become an expert in something that they're really not, not expected to be an expert on, right? These are really complicated drugs. The landscape of specialty is rapidly changing. There's new products coming out all the time. There's the aspect of biosimilars, which we can get into, which is a whole other debate and discussion. And there's drugs that are just there's even drugs that are categorized as specialty or thought of as specialty because they're very expensive, but they really aren't even specialty drugs to begin with. A lot of the drugs highlighted in this particular lawsuit are oral solids. They are used to treat very narrow disease states, diseases like cancer and other you know, very narrowly defined disease states. And so they're very special drugs, but there's nothing about them that necessarily qualifies them as specialty, right? These are oral solids that are easy to create AB-rated generics for under the FDA approval process. And, and that's one of the reasons that they that you're seeing this massive price disparity between originator product and generic product. And the manufacturers are able to bring these new products out pretty quickly. You get that huge, massive price drop. And it's, it's in that area of volatility that I think PBMs enjoy uh, unchecked profit. It's, you know, PBMs almost like day traders are looking for those areas of rapid price movement and leveraging those for hidden profitability. We can get into how they do it and how they use essentially a dual ledger model where they're maintaining two sets of books, if you will, you know, one that they present to the patient and plan sponsor and one that they that represents the reality of drug pricing within the supply chain. And there's certainly a lot to unpack there. But let's think about this, get, getting really back to the heart of your question, which is, gosh, this poor benefits, this poor benefits leader, this poor HR executive who, as expert as they may be in the world of HR, right, as well-trained as they may be, as prudent as they may be, and well-educated, they still are navigating a space that they're just not equipped for. I mean, J John, you said there, there are doctors out there that don't really understand some of the nuances of these drugs and why they cost what they do. And certainly I learn every day more about this, right? And I spent my whole career doing this. Yeah, for sure. So it's an unfair burden that's placed on them to some extent. And I think this lawsuit will call that to light. And, and that'll likely become part of the discussion that, that supports decision-making. So Josh, here's our hypothetical. I'm XYZ company. I sell goods and services online to consumers. But I'm here with the CFO who is completely oblivious to everything, but just got uh, a whole ton of data and analytics dumped in their lap. 
we're sitting here and we realize that, you know, 24% of our total cost of care is pharmacy and 20% of our catastrophic claims are high cost therapies. And Josh just came in to take a look to help to to figure out what matters most and create the accountability needed by CAA. And I apologize for, it's a little complex, and uh, but I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts. So I love the scenario. L- let's tease out the scenario just a little more. Number of transactions matters to you, right? And volume of transactions and the price of those transactions, if your commission is tied to that, right? So what are, most of the people in your company, what are they working to do? They're working to increase the number of transactions, increase the volume, increase the price of the things that are being sold on your platform? Yes. Okay. Yep. So let's flip this over to your current PBM. How do they make most of their money? They make most of their money on the transactions. They make most of their money on the price and the volume of drugs, just like you do on the price and the volume of the things that are being sold on your platform. Price and volume matter to your current PBM. And so just like everyone in your company is currently working to increase the price and the volume of the transactions on your platform, so are everyone at your current PBM working to appease their stockholders, to appease the the, the folks that they're beholden to, to optimize volume and price, to make sure that those are as high as possible on any given day, any hour, for any patient that's utilizing their platform. Once you realize that fundamental truth, that that is what is guiding the behavior of the human beings, every single human within that PBM. Not talking about corporate behavior. I'm not talking about this nebulous concept of how do companies behave. No, no, no. Companies are people. And how the people behave is driven by how they make money. And that is the fundamental truth that's important to understand before we get into the ones and zeros of your data. Before we get into the evidence of how that behavior has played out over the last years, which I promise you is there. I promise you I will show you examples where your current PBM has allowed people to get drugs that they should not have gotten because they wanted to increase price and volume through their platform. I can promise you I'll show you examples where they've moved a patient from a less expensive drug to a more expensive drug because they wanted to increase price and volume across their platform. The evidence will be there, but the evidence doesn't matter. Really what matters is the fundamental truth at the heart of it, which is that the current PBM that you're using makes more money when you spend more money, period. Well said. Charlie Munger, rest his soul. It was great saying, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. That's exactly right. That was it. I I wish I had the wisdom of Charlie Munger. He just said everything I said in the last seven minutes, but he did it. Well said. Well said, Steve. That's it. It made me think as I read through this, again, I read like a beautiful novel, that why would an organization continue to utilize commission-based consultants versus fee-based that don't have that kind of economic incentive to oversell? Yeah, it's interesting. The, The... and and to be clear, most large yeah. most large employers, when they engage with a consultant on an RFP, do do use a fee based arrangement. They'll use a flat fee. They'll say we're going to have to charge you one hundred thousand dollars for this RFP, and you, you mm-hmm. either pay it or we'll get the PBM to agree to pay it at the tail end, regardless of who gets selected. There's nothing inherently conflictive about that type of arrangement. 
what is potentially at conflict and what the what the lawsuit raises as a potential conflict or suggests as a potential conflict is a, is revenue streams that have nothing to do with the RFP project itself, but that may exist outside of the RFP. Revenue associated with group purchasing or coalition-based arrangements that the consultant might have, back-end sales incentives and, and other sort of sales override type of of commission structures that are not always clearly disclosed to clients. And that may not have anything to do with that particular client. Let's let's remember that. The consultant could be receiving revenue uh, in, you know, in the aggregate from a PBM. And that could influence the way that consultant behaves, the way they model things, but it might not be revenue that's associated with Jeff's, you know, internet sale company that, that's running the RFP. Yeah, I think, I think what you said is spot on, Josh. Most employers don't know that those incentives exist. And now with CAA, they must know how the incentives are built into any portion of the healthcare spend uh, that they're incorporating into their plan yeah. for their employees, right? So this goes beyond pharmacy. I mean, pharmacy is a big problem right now, but it's everything, right? And you know, if your broker is getting a per transaction commission, on every drug sold, which was illustrated in this lawsuit, you have the responsibility to understand the downstream impact of that. And I think the the other thing they did well explaining in this lawsuit is the concept of spread. If you could just use a simple example of how egregious this can be for maybe a common drug or a known drug that employers could you know, take away as an understanding and, and maybe drive them to have some incentive to read the lawsuit to learn a little bit more. Yeah, the lawsuit's worth a read. There's definitely a sizzle factor about the examples that they've selected. So just for context, the lawsuit talks in generalities about PBM spread, which really is that dual ledger, that you know, two sets of books concept that I talked about earlier, which is that the PBM has pricing that they're able to negotiate with the supply chain, with retailers, with pharmaceutical companies, you know, cost to inventory, their mail order facility, things like that. And then they have a price that they decide to offer to each plan sponsor and patient. And that price that they offer to each plan sponsor is different, which means that the PBM right from the get-go is a price discriminator. They are deciding this group gets a slightly better price, this group gets a worse price. And that's why two patients can walk into a pharmacy and both of them have an ID card from the exact same PBM. And they can be one right in front of the other in line at the pharmacy getting the exact same drug. And it's like a roulette wheel, right? The first patient gets one price, 35 bucks for a generic. The next patient behind them, same drug, same quantity, same NDC, same pharmacy, same day of the week, and it's $78. And that's happened to me before. I've gotten in one month, I'm on my wife's benefit plan, unfortunately, we're with a traditional PBM. I go in one month, the drug is 35, the next month it's 78. And I always make a point of asking the pharmacist, I'm curious what they're going to say, you know, why is it? Why, I mean, you're, I saw you pull it from exactly the same inventory, right? And the pharmacist, without fail, will say, well, that's just what the PBM tells me to charge you, right? And that happens every single day. And it's a product of the fact that the deal between the employer and the PBM, th this is probably the biggest shocker for most patients out there, most common folks out there that don't understand this, it's not, you're not procuring like you do for office supplies or other things where everything has a distinct price. The contract between the PBM and the plan sponsor doesn't really have drug prices in it. 
It has algorithms. It has buckets that are evaluated in the aggregate at rolling averages that are measured over the course of a year. But there's no price really for any specific drug in the PBM contract with a plan sponsor. And it's within that world, that world of massive wiggle room, that the PBM knows that they have essentially zero accountability for price on any single claim. They have to, over time, hit certain average targets, right, uh, or risk being audited. But on a single claim, they have carte blanche to charge essentially whatever they want or whatever they can get away with. And that's why we see this massive price variability. And the lawsuit, perhaps for PR purposes, focuses in on an area of where we have historically seen the most egregious manipulation of price on this dual ledger system. And that's for specialty generics. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, but these are oral solids that for whatever reason are categorized as specialty that tend to not get contracted very aggressively within the PBM contract, but can be acquired very cheaply. And it's that massive swing between the one ledger and the other, between the PBM contract and the reality of the supply chain. That's huge. And this is why we're seeing those examples where, you know, the, the NADAC, the acquisition cost of the products, 160 bucks, and the PBM's charge is, you know, 10,000% of that, you know, $16,000. Those buckets, Josh, remind me of late 2000s when we had the mortgage-backed securities, you know, that it was a bundle, a tranche of mortgages. And yeah. there were, a lot of them were really good. And there were some really dogs in there, right? But people bought them and said, oh, you're going to average 6% over time. Well, then, of course, the housing market crashed. And they yeah. all crashed. Really. I didn't know I was buying this junk. It's a little bit analogous to that, isn't it? Really it really is. It, you're absolutely right. That when you if you bu bundle things up and put a bow on it, uh, you, can, you can make almost anything look good, right? right? Yeah. yeah. You can mask a lot of things. Let's get back to the claim for a minute, Josh. I'm actually learning something here, right? I mean, the first time Jeff told me about a PBM, I, I thought it was something you ate, like a peanut butter and jelly or something. This is written incredibly well. I yeah. learned so much in the first 30 pages that I thought I understood. Brilliant. And, and it was scorched earth in a very sublime way, right? And by the way, it also brought in the EBCs as being responsible as well. How did it get this way? I mean, I read that. I said, WTF? I mean, how did they let it get this way? Right? The, uh, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I, I've spent the last 20 years trying to explain to my family what it is I do for a living. And now I'm just <laughs> sending, now I'm just sending them the PDF of the lawsuit saying, just read the first 20 pages or so. That's yeah. pretty much what I spend my time losing sleep about. So it is a almost an ideal crash course primer in how this industry works and really how it doesn't work, how dysfunctional it has become. It really is an evolution of a business model that we believe is likely going to see a pendulum swing back towards its roots because of lawsuits like this and because of the scrutiny that it's under right now. If you think about it, PBM started as administrate, right? They started as fee-for-service vendors offering administration of claims and offering to establish arm's length relationships with entities within the supply chain. So yeah, we can get you some rebates. We'll negotiate with those at an arm's length. We'll, we'll you know find you some retailers and negotiate a network. Um, it was really only over time, over those first five or 10 years of the world of PBMs, that they started to realize, well, hang on a sec, you can make some money in dispensing drugs, right? And it was in that early 2000s period in which we saw these PBMs start to acquire or build 
mail order, uh, and then subsequently specialty drug dispensing facilities when specialty drugs were on the rise. Of course, from there, we saw a continued evolution. So PBMs and retailers joining forces to, you know, mass their influence up and down the supply chain. And then most recently, the wave of the mega mergers, the vertical integration that we're now seeing between carrier, PBM, and that vertical integration hasn't stopped there. Let's remember the carriers that own PBMs are now their new tentacle that's reaching out is into the provider groups, right? Into ownership or affiliation of hospitals, health systems, provider groups, independent provider practices. And um, and you can see that so much of it comes back to the hub of it, which frankly is the in intense profitability that's, that's available through drugs and the money that can be made there. And it has become, I would argue, the tail that wags the dog in healthcare finance right now. That while it only remember drugs represent twenty five cents on the dollar for a typical healthcare you know pay, for a typical patient the cost that a patient pays in healthcare uh, and yet it is an outsized influence on profitability and an outsized influence on how these vertically integrated carriers are behaving and have evolved their you know amoeba like shape if you will to try and leverage the dark corners of of drug profitability you know and Josh yeah. that. That that capital is, and we're capitalists. I think all of us on this call, yes. for the most part, but I think for the listener who is also capitalist, hey, this is this America. People trying to make a profit, but the impact here, which you're not lose sight of, somebody is paying the bill. Somebody's paying the bill, and it's the government on one hand, and you know we can talk about now, you know, Medicare being able to negotiate at least at least ten sure. drugs prices, which yeah. also was freaking crazy for decades. <laughs> but employers are paying in higher premiums. And patients are paying it, higher co-pays, higher, higher co-pays, higher deductibles, higher premiums, higher co-insurance. So at the end of the day, money's being sucked out of, I would say, mostly the middle class. Yeah. At least they're the ones who are they're they're, being, they're they're impacted they're not, by it more. Yeah, or they're not taking the med that they need because they can't afford to, right? Yeah. That's right. And it's impacting the total cost of care because that patient right. then, you know, that then ends up in the emergency room or in an inpatient visit. You know, it's funny what you're talking about. Employers have been complaining about this for years, but what really brought it, no one really listens to employers. That's the thing. No one listens to HR professionals out there. But what brought this to the forefront was, frankly, the rise of the high deductible health plan. It was the fact that employers had reached their breaking point. They could afford no more and had to start sharing this burden with the patient and had to start thinking about how can I make this patient more of a consumer? We could talk probably for a whole nother 90 minutes about the whether or not the high deductible healthcare concept makes sense. I have some opinions about that. But for better or worse, it did, it did turn a sort of a wonky... HR benefit anxiety issue into a public policy issue, an issue that suddenly was affecting the pocketbooks of Joe Lunchbox, right, on the street. That was that when you start to affect patients, you're starting to affect voters. And voters are loud. They can be real loud. And they that's where you really start to see politicians take notice, the media take notice, the FTC, et cetera. So. Yeah, what I, you know, what I thought was interesting with this particular lawsuit is J and J's in the middle of the industry. Yeah, right. They're, yeah, they're 
these are smart people. They know all the pitfalls of the pharmacy industry, and yet they allowed it to happen to themselves. When I saw the increases on their own health plan that you know kept hitting their their bottom line, and we're talking about what you know one employee representing you know all the employees of J and J. You know, it was just insane that they didn't think about how the Consolidated Appropriations Act could have an impact on them or, or you know, thinking worse, they didn't care to because the spin of the dollars was just so material that it, you know, it was okay to let it be excessive on the health plan side because they got it back in some other way, right, on, on the other side of, yeah, you know, yeah. drug and you know, rebate piece. And, you know, and I, I look at that and I say, well, you know, here we have a really, you know, savvy organization that, you know, did maybe good or bad, who knows, um, you know, how do employers, they have nothing to do with oh, healthcare, yeah. yep. right, actually figure this out. And, and the lawsuit, you know, points out, of course, the responsibility of the plan fiduciaries in terms of, you know, loyalty and prudence and, and actually recommends hiring an independent consultant. And that it not be, you know, one of the independent consultants that are selling you your insurance product. It'd be, you know, some other entity completely, you know, devoid of any involvement in the process. And, you know, those types of consultants are really hard to find that understand the pharmacy industry. And I wonder if you have any guidance for employers that, you know, are taking this seriously and want to do better for their employees, you know, as to the direction that they should go. So first of all, I agree with you completely. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a company here that makes drugs, that really understands the drug supply chain from the top down. Uh, imagine if you're a golf ball manufacturer in Wisconsin. I mean, how do you even start exactly. to make the details yeah. of the drug supply chain, right? So so yeah, it, it is a particular challenge for most employers out there. Um, and And I agree. I think so much of it comes down to that immense pressure of starting the journey the right way. And it really does start before you even begin to think about selecting the PBM, you're selecting your strategic partner, your, your benefits consultant or your broker. And you know people say, well, why do, why do folks even use brokers if they're that conflicted? And the answer is like, I couldn't imagine doing an RFP without one. Even the process of managing vendors and having to deal with them and having to select the vendors and Keep them at bay during the bidding process, not to mention there's the deep expertise that's required. The fact that you really do want a pharmacist involved, right? We're talking about pharmacy. You want someone with pharmacist credentials involved, but these employers don't necessarily have the resources to keep a full-time employee on staff as a pharmacist. So again, there's a lot of reasons why a, the use of a consultant is inevitable here, right? For most employers, but then it becomes a question of which consultant. And that's perhaps the most important decision that's made during the procurement process. And it's made before you've even figured out which PBMs you want to invite to the table to consider. I'm going to ask that you put your visionary hat on for a second. And this is my John Bogle thesis uh, that I, I'm fond of speaking about. That John Bogle, when the fiduciary duty was imposed on retirement plans, completely changed the industry. I mean, literally, you can get online and in half an hour set up a 401k that's really consumer-friendly, transparent, gives you the tools you need, you feel good, you know, you come out of this thing not feeling dirty uh, and fatigued. So the, the question is pretty simple. With 
CAA and other things like um, Congress talking about uh, PBMs and drug prices. Uh, how do you see the model for PBM changing both in the short and in the long term as well? Well, I mentioned earlier in our discussion a pendulum swing that we anticipate for the industry and how the industry really did start with its eye on efficient administration, that really it was PBMs were just administrators, right? They were administrators, they were able to get you best price, but they weren't profiting off of the sale of drugs. And if you look at all of the signs that we're seeing, all of the writing on the wall, whether we're talking about FTC investigation, this lawsuit, scrutiny by Congress, or, or really anything else that, that's coming out right now, all of it seems to point to a pendulum swing back towards PBM as efficient administrator, getting you best price, and then getting out of the way, right? And that's, a, that's largely what our model is built on. It's this notion that competitive industries work, right? Price competition works if you can get friction out of the system. If you can get the middleman that's that's clogging up the works, if you can get them out of the way and just allow price competition to take place, it's actually highly effective. We see it all over the, look, you see it in the drug industry with over-the-counter drugs. So it's already there, right? There's a perfect example. When you go in to a pharmacy, you know that you're gonna be able to get over-the-counter aspirin at a pretty reasonable price, over-the-counter acetaminophen or ibuprofen. You know that they're held to price competition because if it's not if it's not inexpensive enough, you're gonna go across the street to the grocery store or the next pharmacy and get it less expensive there. Just like gasoline, right? Like the same way we buy gasoline driving down the street, you find the cheapest price. So it's possible, even in the world of healthcare, even in the world of drugs, hyper-competitive pricing is possible. The thing about OTCs is that there's no middleman. There's no one controlling price except the consumer and the seller. And if they're allowed to freely communicate, and if prices is, is relatively frictionless, then you will see competitiveness play out. And that's a lot of what, what our platform is modeled on for the employers that we serve and has worked out very, very well for them. It's where I think directionally the industry will go. And that changes the demands and the expectations placed on the PBM. In the new world order, the PBM has a couple very important things to prove. One is efficiency. And that's another thing we haven't really talked about, but PBMs in the midst of making all of this money on the dispensing of drugs have not spent any money improving their architecture, improving their infrastructure. A lot of them are running on platforms and systems that are you know, 20, 30 years old. And so that's where I think we may start to see some reinvestment now is the realization that you know efficiency is going to matter, technology is going to matter, decision support for patients is going to matter. All of those elements that have largely been ignored in, in the race to, to conquer the world of dispensing as a profit center. And that's, that's, that's where our organization is pointed. It's where I think, you know, the smart folks are, are, are headed. I have to say that, you know, it's, we're, we're, you know, we're talking about value and, you know, we're the moving to value Alliance, right? And I can measure value in what Steve Schutzer does, you know, joint replacements as for at least for the episode of care. Because I can actually measure the outcome. The next phase of this, this is just going to be about pricing, right? It always starts with the pricing. And by the way, the, the joint replacement business is a lot like the pharmacy business in that the middlemen actually, I learned from Steve, make a lot of the money. The people who, not the guys who make the freaking joint and not the guy who puts the joint in, but the guy who gets the joint and gives it to you. It's a little analogous to that, but we haven't even scratched the surface on the outcomes. And, you know, they're 
drugs that have really, really crappy outcomes. There's less expensive alternatives. Sometimes you don't need the drug. Sometimes you're getting the wrong drug in the first place or a drug that if you did the genetic testing on isn't going to work. So I think we got a long way to go. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, I, I agree completely. The reality of PBM has no interest in that. They have no interest in outcomes. They have no interest in deprescribing. That that word is a uh, is a four letter word. Traditional. Right. Perfect. Yeah. They have no interest in finding alternatives to pharmacy therapy or getting a patient to back to zero again. Right. Getting a patient back to neutral to neutral health. Uh, that's it's not in their best financial interest. I can tell you that. Right. And that's a core problem in the whole healthcare industry. Actually. Sorry, Steve. You want to say something? No, as I say, as I process what I read, a lot of emotions, and we only articulated some of them, but I'm a softie. All of us have friends that are CEOs of small, middle-sized companies, and I talk about the CAA and have no clue we're talking about. Yeah. And think about what we just spoke about for the last hour, which is PBM. They have to show that same prudence in orthopedics and MSK and cancer care. Disability, life insurance, retirement. They're, I mean, ERISA covers all that. It, yeah. If I was an employer, I said, what did I get myself into? How do I get yeah. out of this? Right? Yeah. This isn't about making my widgets, but it also made me think things that Jeff and I and John and Lisa talk about is how do we make their life easier, right? How do we make the employer's life easier? Because they're stuck with this right now. And that yeah. has to do with the whole idea of collaborating and trying to make their life easier. Gosh, we're very grateful for you joining us. This is really insightful and engaging. Thanks for your insight and integrity as well. Very much appreciated. We love and support what you guys are doing and the voice that you all have out in the industry is a, is a powerful one. Very much Thanks, appreciated. Thank so you. Much. Thanks very much for having me.